The Wake Knot by Robert McMinn. Chapter 16 Barb. She has let them all get tangled into elf knots, that lazy slut within. Charlie knew they should leave. Chris had been right. The logic of the gendarme's theory was that Celia Patel's killers would keep coming back until the potential witness, Chris, was out of the picture. If the gendarmes really thought Chris would be any use, she knew they would have already placed him in protective custody. But he hadn't seen all that much, so they'd left him vulnerable to attack, which ought to be enough for the killers to work out that Chris was no danger to them, but they were obviously belt and braces kind of people, in theory anyway. She had been startled at the news that Chris was expecting a composite technician to take a description of the complete stranger, it turned out, who had passed on the cheap holiday. He had been so devastated by the telling of this story that she hadn't felt like sharing her own news. The previous afternoon, Chris had dozed in the car on the way to the hospital, again, after taking both paracetamol and ibuprofen to deal with the pain in his shoulder after the fingerprinting. Charlie was angry about this. Chris should not have been put in the position of aggravating his injury in order to satisfy the needs of the gendarmes, who were doing nothing to protect him. In any event, surely nobody really thought that fingerprints on a key that had been handled by dozens of holiday visitors were going to crack this case. It was as if the gendarmes simply wanted to give the appearance of an investigation. It was all optics. At the hospital, they'd sat by Meg's bedside, for an hour. But she was in an induced coma with tubes all around her, slowly draining the fluid from her lungs. A passing doctor told them that they'd wake Megan up the following day. After the visit, they'd driven back to Lusignac again. While Chris slept off the painkillers, Charlie sat at a table with a pad and pencil and had sketched out her objections to the case Serre had presented. Her main objection was that it had depended on tying too many events together. Nothing in her experience was this neat and tidy. You couldn't just arbitrarily link the murder and the car running Chris off the road and then the assault on Meg. Another thing nagging at her was the idea that whoever tried to drown Meg knew to disable the pool alarm. If they were familiar enough with the prize property to do that, then oughtn't they have also known that Meg and not Charlie were sleeping in the flat? But then again, if they were simply professionals sent by somebody else and told to do something about the party in the flat, then maybe not. Serre had revealed one interesting detail. Amongst Celia Patel's effects, the gendarmes had found a card. It was a tarot card. Serre had shown it to her, protected inside an evidence bag. It was a similar style to the one Meg had found in the flat, but the picture on it had been the hanged man. It depicted an individual hanging upside down with one leg crossed behind the other. She had told Serre about the card found in the flat, and he had asked to see it, but she couldn't find it and hadn't got around to asking Chris about it yet. Perhaps Meg had thrown it away. In the end, she scribbled across her notes and then wadded up the paper, tossing it across to the kitchen area where it bounced off the cupboard that contained the bin. She needed more information. They also needed to leave. They could drive back to England in Chris's car, but what then? 
What was meant to be a holiday romance was now much more serious just because of things that had happened. Charlie tried to imagine the scenario. So they would drive back to England. She would drive back to England because he couldn't drive, not that distance anyway, and drop Chris off wherever he lived. Where did he live? And then somehow make her way back to Boston. And then what? Forget all about it. And what about Meg? How would Meg get home? Charlie held her head in her hands, realising that in all the shock of the past 24 hours she had failed to once think about Megan's family. Had the gendarmes phoned them? Should she? She'd never met them, and would just be another stranger bringing bad news. But there was nobody else to do it. She needed a phone. She wanted to speak to Gerard Serre before contacting Meg's parents. The mobile signal in Nusignac was flaky and intermittent, and all the network she could use anyway. The signal strength seemed to change with the direction of the wind and time of day. She looked in on Chris, who was still sleeping, snoring slightly because he was lying on his back. She backed out of the bedroom again and left the cottage, heading for Barb's house. It was around five in the afternoon. There was some cloud cover, though nothing that looked like rain. Every now and then a breeze would stir the tops of the trees. She found Barb in her front courtyard, watering some plants that were now in the shade, the dog following her around, demanding attention. Barb, as usual, was dressed in scruffy-looking clothes, an oversized top that was covered in compost and damp patches. Hello, dear, she said. How are you holding up? Are you here to tell me that you're leaving? Uh, well, we're thinking about it, but I'm mainly here to ask if I can use your telephone. I need to speak to the gendarmes, the investigating officer, and then maybe I'll need to make a call to England, to Meg's family. I'll reimburse you, of course. Barb shook her head. No need, she said. Phone's in the hall, door's open. And she bent back to her work. Charlie went over to the front door and pushed it open, the dog sniffing at her heels. She heard Barb call from behind her. Springer, come back here, leave the lady alone. The dog padded back to Barb. The hallway was dark, much cooler than outside, and she could see the landlion in its cradle on a table with a stool next to it, a quaintly old-fashioned setting. She sat down and pulled Sere's card from her pocket. After being kept on hold for an interminable time while someone looked for the officer, he came on the line. She told him why she was calling and that she just wanted to check before she called Meg's parents whether they had already been informed of their daughter's incapacity. Uh, you will not be able to reach them, I think, Serre said. I spoke to them yesterday and I believe they are on their way to see me and arrange to take their daughter to England for convalescence. Uh, they are flying into Bergerac, I think. You may be able to speak to them uh, when they arrive. Charlie felt deflated. Of course, that made sense, but seeing them in person would be horrible, she knew, especially as it seemed they didn't trust her, Charlie, to get Meg home safely. She quickly ended the call and went back out to Barb, who was still working on a plant. Uh, thank you, Barb, she said. Uh, no need for the second call. Meg's parents are on their way, it seems. Barb stood up and looked her up and down. You look like you could use a drink, she said. Join me? She pointed vaguely at the back of the house. Charlie hesitated, then realised that a drink might well be what she needed, if only to settle her nerves. Barb took off her gardening gloves, tossed them to one side and led her back into the house. They walked through the dim hallway and into the kitchen at the back of the house, which had a double door 
opening onto a compact terrace and a small leafy back garden. On the way through the kitchen, Barb pulled a bottle of rosé wine from the fridge and took two large wine glasses from a shelf. Beyond the garden stretched sloping fields with another house in the distance. The view was spectacular. This, here in the later afternoon, was a private and sunny spot. Charlie could see how this was much easier to manage for a person on their own. As she sat down, her thoughts ran ahead, and without planning to, she said, I can see why you prefer this place. Barb was pouring two large slugs of wine. She put the bottle down with elaborate care and said, Yes, dear, prefer it to what? The other place, the hermitage cottages and flat. Barb lifted her wine glass, pushing the other across the table towards Charlie. She raised her wine in a toast and turned her mouth down in a sign of grudging respect. You're a very astute person. It's the training, said Charlie, picking up her own wine. Training? I'm police, she said. The wine was fresh, dry and sharp on the palate. Oh, a beat. Oh, Barb looked thoughtful. What does your training tell you about what's been happening? Well, I have been wondering, said Charlie, how you're feeling about it all. I mean, two of your guests being attacked in one week, one of them killed. Uh, what will that do for business? It'll blow over, said Barb. There's no media around here. I suppose two incidents might attract some attention, but I doubt anyone around here will talk to the press. Charlie wondered at the woman's complacency. Did she really care so little that two people staying in one of her properties had been attacked? The village has a certain atmosphere, Charlie said, a lot of closed shutters. You don't see many people out and about. No, agreed Barb. She spoke in an unhurried way, not remotely defensive. It can be a bit dead. Population in general here in the Perigord Vert is very low. There are no pavements in the village. Most of the residents are older. These Vichy types don't mix with the likes of us. Very few of the houses in the main part of the village have even a front yard like mine. Nobody really walks anywhere. Charlie was taken aback by Barb's off-colour remark about her French neighbours. She thought it wise to change the subject. I guess in the past people would have gathered in the church for services. When there were more... Christians here, maybe, said Barb. Charlie frowned. Was Barb making a joke about Christian, the restaurateur, or sneering at the religious locals? How long have you lived here? We came down in the 80s, when property was cheap, my husband and I. We bought the place down the road first, then started to rent it out. We didn't live here full time at first, so it was our holiday retreat. But then we found ourselves sacrificing holidays in order to rent it out more, so... We converted the outbuilding and the granny flat, and we still had more visitors than we could cope with. So then we bought this place. You could pick up these village properties for a song, honestly. We grew very experienced at renovation, had a file of facts full of useful contacts, tradesmen, builders. When did you move here permanently? When my husband retired, where we'd been building a new place, came down here in 96 and he had a stroke three months later, never did move into the new place. That's such a shame, said Charlie. Bob's face betrayed no emotion. Did he die? Lingered on a bit, but yes. 
Has there been anybody since? Goodness, no, said Barb with a laugh. I've got no time for that nonsense. So what do you do for company? asked Charlie. She didn't know why just yet, but she wanted to keep digging. Well, there's a little group of us, Christian, down at the restaurant, Edward and Amelia, who own the fort. We often meet for drinks or dinner. A few other expats in the circle. We see each other more in the winter than in the summer. A lot of people leave in the high seas and rent out their properties, head off to Spain or further south. Do you know much about the history of Lusignac? Not my department, I'm afraid. I'm more interested in plants than people. You know the church? What about it? Barb closed her mouth tight for a moment. Seemed as if she were about to say something and then stopped herself. Finally, she said, You'd have to ask Edward, the chap who owns the fort, the castle. He's your local history buff. Could you introduce me? Really? I thought you were thinking of leaving. I think I'll wait to speak to Megan's parents. In the meantime, I'm curious about the church. I'll speak to him, said Barb. She finished her wine. More? she asked, making no move for the bottle. No, thank you, said Charlie. Better head back. Chris will be wondering. She stood up. So, as far as you know, Barb, has anybody ever been killed in the village before now? You mean killed, as opposed to died, like my husband? Charlie nodded, saying nothing. Barb's eyes wandered up to the roof line of the house. I think, I'm not sure, there might have been, Barb said. Charlie said goodbye and thanked Barb for the wine, then walked slowly back to the hermitage, feeling the effects of the strong rosé. She'd saved the best question for last and was intrigued by Barb's non-answer. You either knew a thing like that or you didn't, she thought, and Barb knew something. Chapter 17. Three Stars. What did men need more whose bodies were as stout as their hearts? Chris woke while Charlie was out and struggled into the shower. A week on from his accident, the shoulder was knitting up, although he was experiencing stiffness from holding his arm in the same position all the time and sleeping always on his back. When Charlie came in, he was shirtless in the kitchen making a pot of coffee. As she was helping him into a clean shirt, he noticed that she seemed a little tipsy and bright-eyed. Where have you been then, he said. Are you pissed? Barb poured me a massive glass of rosé, she said. Nice. I went to phone. I went to phone Meg's parents, but it turns out they're already on their way. How did you find that out? Oh, I phoned Inspector Serre first, he told me. So I was thinking maybe we should stay to speak to them. I know you were set on going home. Well, the holiday feels well and truly over, so... He stopped, thinking. But if you still want to drive back with me, I don't mind hanging around a bit longer. He stopped, remembering Meg's car, and wondered what they'd do about that. You know what, Charlie said, not noticing. We should do something to take our mind off things. Something we might have done anyway if this had still been a holiday. What like? Well... We could go down the river in a kayak. You see hundreds of people on there. It looks fun. 
Chris looked at her with his eyebrows raised, then dipped his eyes down to his injured shoulder. Oh, well, I could row or whatever, and you could just sit there and enjoy the view. Paddle, corrected Chris. Will they let me on in a sling? I don't see why not. You'll have a life jacket, and they let children on and stuff. We can have a look. OK, that's something we can do tomorrow then, weather permitting, Chris said. He poured the coffee, and Charlie used a Wi-Fi connection to check out the next day's weather. It's looking OK, she said, taking the coffee with a smile of thanks. A bit of cloud, but not much. Make sure you wear a hat. What else do you want to do? Chris asked. Well, a little detective work, she said, but not of the work kind. I'm interested still in the weird name of the church and how it came to be named after a saint from my neck of the woods. Barb said there's some local guy who's a history buff. I thought we were thinking that people were lying about the church. No, I've been thinking about it. They're just old, aren't they? Forgetful or more likely they just can't be asked to answer all the questions. I mean... If you live here and you aren't religious, what reason would you have to know anything about the church? I was talking to Barb about the odd atmosphere in this village. People don't seem very sociable or friendly, do they? It's an effect of having too many tourists, too many people coming down here for a bit of peace and quiet. Nobody wants to interact. We came here ourselves for a bit of peace and quiet. You said on that first day you were looking for quieter roads. So I don't think there's anything sinister about the way they answered questions about the church. Communities used to centre around small churches like that. They're not even using it. Chris could feel the logic, but was surprised at how Charlie had come around. Then again, in the light of recent events, maybe the question of the church name was too trivial to worry about. And she was right. A little bit of delving into local history would be a nice distraction. They decided to eat at La Licorne that evening, for a change of scene and for the opportunity to pick Christian Hunt's brain about local history, or at least the local historian. They didn't bother phoning to book, but took a walk down the road and put their heads in the door, asking if there would be a free table at eight. Christian wasn't around, but a French woman who worked there as a waitress told them that there would be. They had an hour to kill, so went for a walk, mindful that the last time they had taken an evening stroll, they had returned to horror. But there was nobody left at the Hermitage. The Morgans had clearly packed their car and driven away, presumably having given their contact details to the gendarmes in case they were needed for questioning. Chris thought back nostalgically on the brief frisson of excitement they'd felt when speculating that Bill Morgan might have been the killer. He still wondered about the car that had knocked him off his bike, but didn't think that mystery would ever be solved. They walked down the country lane that looped away from the main church square and then looked for a way to cut across fields and woods to get back to the main road. It was fairly warm and the sun was still up. They stood for a while looking at the side of the fort that faced away from the main road. What looked like it ought to be a square surrounding a courtyard was now a sort of broken C-shape, with an open face showing the lane they were on. "'I'd love to have a look around in there, wouldn't you?' said Charlie. "'That's where Edward lives, the historian. "'What's his surname?' "'I don't know. Barb didn't say. "'Hard to look him up, then.' They walked on. Chris focused on Charlie and the mood she was in. 
The near loss of Meg was still a recent shock, but she seemed to have absorbed the news and was operating at a higher level again. Higher than he was, certainly, perhaps confident that Meg would make a full recovery. He supposed without really knowing that this was down to her experience as a police officer. She must have seen this kind of thing before. If she didn't exactly take it in her stride, she did have some kind of coping mechanism. Chris himself would rather have driven home, but understood why Charlie wanted to stick around to meet Meg's mum and dad, and he didn't yet want to say goodbye to her. He was having trouble coming up with a form of words to discuss what might happen to their relationship, if that's what it was, when they returned home. Holiday romance. Like anything you took home from holiday, it would never taste as sweet, surely. Realistically, he thought, neither of them ought to be embarking on a long-term relationship so soon after, well, divorce in her case, but not even that in his. His mind darted away from the thought. They had grown so close, so intimate, in such a short stretch of time, but it was all, probably, an illusion, born out of events and the intense feelings they'd provoked. After they'd walked half an hour, they had the choice of whether to attempt to cut across fields or just walk back the way they'd come. Since there didn't seem to be an easy or obvious footpath, they decided to walk back up the road. This went against the grain for Chris, who liked to work in loops, both on his bike and on foot. Heading back up the road felt like a defeat. He fell silent, feeling deflated and disappointed at the train of his own thoughts, and they walked together for a few minutes, hand in hand, listening to the evening sounds of sleepy grasshoppers and songbirds. I still haven't told you what Serre said to me in my interview, Charlie said. Chris looked down at her. Right, he said, because I was so thrown by my own. What was it he said to you? Well, it was just one little detail. I've been meaning to ask you, actually. Do you remember the tarot card that Meg found? Hmm. Have you seen it since that morning? Don't think so. Why? Well, Serre found a second card. It was in Celia Patel's cottage. Chris stopped in the lane. Wait, what? The same card? Another tarot card? A different card, but it looked like it came from the same deck. What was on it? It had a twelve in Roman numerals on the top, and it was the hanged man. Do you know this card? Chris thought for a moment. Is it going to be what I think it is? Well, it's a person hanging, obviously, but upside down. Huh. And they found it in Celia Patel's rental. Yes, and what? Well, you remember I said there was something weird about the way they were putting her body down. It was because she was oriented wrong. I mean, if she's committed suicide, she was the wrong way around. But if she had been in position upside down, hanging by a foot, then... So now these cards are a message, a warning. The scene is staged. This is obviously what Serre thinks. So I mentioned the card Meg found and then I couldn't find it. They fell silent, both thinking about the implications of the second card. Back in the village, heading towards La Lecon, Charlie said, You OK? Me? I I'm fine, just that sometimes it hits you. The enormity of it. What are you going to say to her parents? He knew the question might ruin the evening for them both, but it slipped out before he could stop himself. 
I don't know. Words don't necessarily help. Hopefully Meg will be awake and full of beans and things won't seem so bleak. Sometimes just being there is all you need to do. Even if it's just to give them something to focus their anger on. You're willing to put yourself there. I am. I feel responsible. This was my idea. Chris looked at her. But come on, people go on holiday. This is not exactly a war zone or a terrorist hotspot. Shit happens and you're not to blame. She squeezed his hand. They passed underneath the lime tree and walked up to the restaurant door. There was a couple sitting out under the tree, a middle-aged man with a younger woman. Christian Hunt met them at the door. Ah, good evening, he said. How lovely to see you. I was so terribly sorry to hear about your friend. She had a real spark to her. I do hope she'll be okay. Chris and Charlie nodded in acknowledgement. Christian continued. Would you like to sit inside or out? They looked at each other. Chris shrugged. The evening was cooler than it had been on their previous visit, but still balmy. The air smelled sweet. Outside, I think, Charlie said. Christian showed them to a table, two over from the other couple. He took their drinks order and went back inside. Chris swivelled his eyes toward the other customers and said, And would your daughter like a softer drink? Charlie snorted. You know, that was a thing about you that surprised me at first, she said. What? Well, there you were, a single man of a certain age, on holiday, solo, pretty quickly worked out you were divorced or separated, and there we were, Meg, who were, is very funny, clever, pretty, with an amazing body, and me, ten years older than her, divorcee, beautiful, Chris said, as she hesitated. Thanks, she said softly, but you know what I mean. Meg's lovely, but you were the one with all the, I don't know what you'd call it, emotional intelligence? Charlie laughed. She can be a bit insensitive. I always thought she lacked a filter, which makes her a good and honest friend, and I wouldn't change her for the world. No. He leaned forward and took her hand. But you were the one that intrigued me that first day. It seems so long ago. Chris let go of her hand suddenly feeling as if he was forcing it in defiance of his own thoughts. Christian came with a tray bearing their aperitifs. Compliments of the house, he said, with some amuse-bouche to keep you occupied. Chef is trying out some new dishes. They thanked him, then Charlie said, Christian, do you know the people who own the chateau, the fort? Edward and Amelia? Of course, we're neighbours. I understand Edward is the person to ask about local history. Christian seemed to have to think about that. Ah, you may be right. Who told you that? Bob. A particular aspect of local history that interests you, if I may ask? Well, the fort, of course, and the core of the village, the original parts. Chris noticed that she had been careful not to mention the church specifically. Did she still think Christian had something to hide? Christian said... I seem to remember Edward had found a number of interesting documents when he bought the fort, had some of them framed. Would you be able to introduce us, do you think? Is Edward around? He certainly is. I'll do my best. When is it you're off? Saturday, is it? We're booked till then, yes, Charlie said. I'll make it a top priority then, Christian said, and left them with a pair of menus.
They ate the amuse-bouche and finished their drinks. While they did so, several more customers arrived and the terrace area began to fill up. Where did all these people come from? Holiday lets? Had they driven here? Their food order was taken by the waitress they'd seen earlier, and they didn't see Christian again that evening. Chris had chicken with crayfish and Charlie had duck. Charlie had to cut up Chris's meat for him because he still couldn't make full use of his injured arm. They shared a bottle of wine. Both of them opted for coffee and amaretto biscuits in preference to a dessert. They split the bill even though Charlie tried to insist that she pay for everything. As before, the food was acceptable and the service efficient enough even though it was busy. Chris remembered that he hadn't got around to reviewing the restaurant online. Three stars, he thought grudgingly. Listening to the cicadas singing in the bushes and the trees in the gardens, they walked home in the dark. The hermitage was in total blackout. They had forgotten to switch on the security lights before they left. They had also forgotten that they were, as of now, the only residents. As Charlie fumbled for her keys, Chris used his phone as a torch to illuminate the lock. She turned the key in the door and he looked nervously around, thinking about tarot calling cards left by killers. With one of the residents murdered, one in hospital and one family fled, the building seemed sinister. His heart was pounding by the time they were inside and Charlie was securing the locks behind them. Chris went to the wall and flicked on the exterior lights, the motion-sensitive ones, and they came on, as they always did, for five minutes before deactivating. Charlie was sensitive to his nervousness and smiled. We really should just leave them on all the time so we don't forget next time we're out. It's not so much the darkness that got to me as the feeling that we're really isolated down here. It's not as if there are any neighbours within earshot. It was true that because of the way the cottage faced across the countryside, considerably below the level of the road, they were unlikely to be heard if they were in distress. We're okay. If I was Serret, I'd have someone watching this place, even if he would never admit to it. He'll be sneaking it through the budget somehow, and I am, remember, pretty handy in a fight, part of the training. But you're not tall up or anything, Chris said. Look. Stop worrying, she said, and let's go to bed. Mm -hmm.